0: Time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking, with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Oh, it's good to be here. Got some interesting things on the agenda today, including but not limited to the Constitution Act of BC. And does that say forfeit their seat? What's happening here?
1: <laughs> Indeed. And I thought this was something worth uh, talking about in the context of the controversy over the Victoria counselor and whether she should. Uh, Be resigning or be removed for uh, signing that uh, uh, controversial letter. Um, And I I think some people have expressed the view that, look, there's nothing that can be done. Uh, People are kind of uh, can conduct themselves in any way they want and can't be removed. Uh, And that's not, in fact, the case. Um, And so I I thought a place to start might be a review of the circumstances in which uh, an MLA. Uh, can forfeit uh, their seat in the legislature. And this comes from the Constitution Act, not of Canada, but of British Columbia. Provinces have constitutions too. Um, And in British Columbia, the British Columbia Constitution Act in Section 34, uh, which is entitled Forfeiture of a Member's Seat, sets out the circumstances in which a member of the legislative assembly uh, is deemed to no longer be that and their seat becomes vacant if any of the following circumstances apply. Uh, The first of those, maybe not surprisingly, is that without permission of the legislative assembly, a member fails to attend the legislative assembly during a whole session. So if you don't show up at all, uh, you're out. Uh, B, uh, this one people may not be aware of, B is this. Uh, The member takes an oath or makes a declaration or acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience, or adherence to a foreign state or power. If you do that, you're also out as an MLA. Your seat's vacant. Next, and this one I think may be quite surprising to people, because in Canada, you are permitted to have what is sometimes referred to as dual citizenship, somebody who would be a citizen of another country and a citizen of Canada. But that's a problem if you're an MLA. So C is, the member does or concurs in or adopts an act by which the member may become the subject or citizen of any foreign state or power. If you do that, you cease to be a member of the legislative assembly. Uh, That one, I don't know that everyone may be aware of it and I don't know whether there are uh, any members uh, that uh, are dual citizens. Uh, And uh, there would have to be some consideration as to whether uh, if somebody maintained uh, or uh, whatever it might be a dual citizenship status, whether they are uh, uh, lawfully entitled to remain as an MLA. Uh, And then finally, D, uh, the member is convicted of an indictable offense that may only be prosecuted by way of indictment. Uh, So that would be a serious criminal offence. If you're convicted of something like murder, (laughs) you can't remain uh, as an MLA. Uh, And so those are the criteria under the B.C. Constitution Act that an MLA uh, seat becomes vacant. They are removed. Um, And then the other thing to remember about all of this is that, of course, uh, not of course, but municipalities uh, in uh, Canada... Are are, All they are are delegated, they have some delegated authority from the province, uh, and they don't have some independent constitutional status. Uh, And what that means is that those entities, the municipalities, and indeed the people who are city councillors or mayors, are really there at the pleasure of the province. Uh, And so if the uh, uh, Legislative Assembly in British Columbia decided to pass the removal of councillor x act uh they could just pluck them out and they would no longer be a councillor in Mm. fact uh the uh, province could pass legislation uh doing away with a municipality altogether or merging all of the various municipalities together or deciding they're going to just exercise the powers they had previously delegated to a municipality directly themselves Hmm. Uh, and so uh, it's not as if there is no remedy the remedy for misconduct and perhaps the you know things set out in the b c Constitution act that would cause um somebody to become ineligible to continue as an m l a might be some guide to uh w- whether it would be uh Uh, appropriate to pass uh, an act removing a particular councillor or not. That might be some guide. But ultimately, it is a political decision. It is not a circumstance without a remedy. It is not a circumstance where if somebody uh, is a city councillor and they engage in grossly inappropriate conduct, uh, that they can simply ride it out until the next election. It's ultimately not up to them. Uh, It's up to the provincial legislature. And so, uh, you know, when you've got a majority government, it's up to them. Uh, And so that's where uh, ultimately responsibility lies, and that's why there is clearly uh, a legal process to remove somebody who engages in inappropriate conduct. Um, The other thing which is interesting, I think, just to reflect upon, has been discussion today about the apology from uh, the city councillor in Victoria Yes, uh, and the letter that was written, the original letter that was written. Mm. And of course, and I think rightly, it's been... uh, Criticized roundly for its uh, comments uh, calling into question um, sexual violence committed by members of Hamas when they attacked uh, Israel, uh, because, well, I must say I'm a professional skeptic uh, in my day-to-day employment. The the evidence of that in this case appears to be simply overwhelming. Yes. Right. You've got uh, video recordings of uh, women with their bottoms of clothing off, bleeding into their pants, well, uh, you know, having their hands cable tied uh, with uh, Hamas terrorists yelling Allah Akbar and loading the person in, moving the person around. The the evidence of uh, sexual violence by members of Hamas appears to be simply overwhelming. Yes. Uh, and so while, you know, everyone needs to keep an open mind about things and we all need to bear in mind the fog of war and all of those things, on that point, there does appear to be overwhelming evidence uh, of that conduct. And the, the other thing, the things which are other uh, of interest in that letter that the city councillor um, signed um, uh, includes sort of how it begins. And the letter actually begins by calling into question the existence of Canada. Yes. Uh, and it begins by saying, we, the underside residents of so-called Canada, uh, and then go on to criticize what the letter claims to be a massacre and genocide in Gaza. Uh, and then uh, at the uh, near the conclusion of the letter, uh, there's some scientists who say, "Well, what's what on earth could be going on that would cause somebody to write this letter? What sort of you know philosophical lens uh, would uh, cause somebody to write such a thing?" Uh, and the the letter uh, carries on to talk about how in the view of the people who signed it, it says, we implore you to stand in genuine, in all bold, solidarity with the indigenous communities of Turtle Island uh, and Palestine who continue to resist against settler colonial genocide. Hmm. Uh, And so the authors of the signatories of the letter appear to be sort of connecting up so-called Canada uh, with uh, concepts uh, claiming that uh, there is a colonial genocide occurring with respect to, uh, and they tie together indigenous communities of Turtle Island, sort of a label, I think, Turtle Island being a term, I think, used by some indigenous communities referring to North America uh, on a belief that the world was held up on the back of a turtle. I think that's the origin of that, mm-hmm. tying that to Palestine. And the the letter seems to the broad philosophy of it uh, is, is something I think you see from time to time, which is, I think, essentially... Uh, Lumping together people either as victims of things, or in the alternative, you must be somehow an oppressor. And the idea that it would be impossible for somebody who is the victim of something to engage in horrific conduct—that seems to be the origin of it. You know, there there is a lot of uh, that. Uh, there is some of that culture these days of people uh, uh, labeling uh, themselves or groups as victims of things, and then the idea being that somebody who's in that camp can do no wrong. Um, so, anyways, that's the that's the flavor of the letter. There's uh, various elements to it that are perplexing. Uh, in addition to the uh, denial or calling the the uh, sexual violence committed by it says Palestinians, uh, saying that that is describing it as unverified. Uh, while the same in the same paragraph, accepting uh, as true, for example, uh, claims of the number of people killed alleged by Hamas. So it's a really interesting letter, there's a lot going on in there, Uh, and uh, people should know that it it is not something which is without remedy. There is a remedy, there is a legal remedy for it. Uh, If the legislature saw fit, they could simply remove the uh, councillor, and so her continued uh, service in that role uh, is really a political decision being made at the provincial level.
0: Let's take our quick break here. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Very interesting comments, especially with what's in the news right now. Legally speaking, continues right after this. All right, back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue our conversation. Up next, a couch, and injured back, and injuries to dignity, feelings, and self-respect. How do courts deal with stuff like that? In a very complicated way.
1: Hmm. So. This was a this is a local case. Uh, it, it originated at Dodds Furniture, a well-known local furniture store. Uh, and the issue started with a, a person who had worked there for about three years uh, in a position that he described as a, an assistant manager position, uh, who, I think it's not uh, controversial, injured his back lifting a couch. Uh, and so you might wonder, how does that translate into dignity, feelings, and self-respect? Hmm. Well, what happened is after the fellow injured his back, he took uh, some time off, apparently five or six weeks from the uh, job at the furniture store. Uh, And then uh, after some uh, recuperation, indicated he wished to come back. Uh, And when he came back, uh, he apparently was given a a slightly different position working there. Uh, He described it as an assembly position, Uh, But that was, uh, to some extent, controversial. In any case, he was being paid the same amount and had the same hours, right? But there was a difference in what the work might entail. Uh, And so he decided to uh, refuse the position that he was offered when he came back uh, and instead made a uh, claim under the human rights legislation in British Columbia. Uh, And in British Columbia, we've got a, a human rights code Uh, which prohibits discrimination on various grounds, one of them being physical disability. And so his claim was that uh, he was uh, refused his uh, previous position uh, because of his disability that he suffered having hurt his back lifting the couch. Uh, And he succeeded. And he wound up with a $10,000 award Uh, from the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal, which is the entity that decides uh, complaints made uh, under the Human Rights Code. Uh, And the way that uh, plays out is that they, because it wasn't necessarily a loss of money, he was offered the same hours and same pay, uh, but the uh, Human Rights uh, Tribunal awarded the man $10,000 for what it described as injuries to his dignity, feelings, and Hmm. self-respect, based on presumably the the different job duties that he was offered when he came back uh, after the couch injury. Uh, And then that all led to Dodds uh, conducting a judicial review of the decision made by the Human Rights Tribunal and one of the arguments they made was uh, an interesting one and it's uh, uh sort of has a uh, it has a latin name that sometimes is it's uh, ex terpi causa and what that latin term talks about is the idea that if you make a a, a claim uh which uh, sort of is has its origin um like uh, improper conduct or unlawful conduct that sort of concept uh that you can't succeed in making a claim for it And the argument the uh, uh, furniture store uh, made on the judicial review is they said, look, the man claimed that he was unable to work and not working and collected uh, WCB payments after the couch incident. Uh, But it came out that, in fact, he was working as a taxi driver and getting paid to do so. And so their argument was, well, hold on, this entire claim is premised on this sort of false premise that he was unable to work when, in fact, the evidence came out that he was working and that he was uh, required to pay back uh, the money he got from WCB because he, in fact, was working another job during a period of time he claimed to have been injured and off work. Hmm. And so that was the basis that the case most recently wound up in Supreme Court. Uh, Unfortunately for this furniture store, uh, that uh, argument didn't succeed on the judicial review. And the reason it didn't succeed on the judicial review, in part, was that the judge found that the furniture store had not made that argument, or even a similar argument, back at the time the case was being considered by the Human Rights uh, uh, Tribunal. Uh, And the uh, court uh, pointed out correctly uh, that in British Columbia, there's been a decision made to assign responsibility for deciding um, human rights complaints to this Human Rights Tribunal rather than the court. Uh, And so when the court's reviewing it, uh, a decision like that, uh, they're doing it with a lot of what's referred to as sort of deference to the original decision maker, the Mm -hmm. tribunal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the uh, judge found it wasn't appropriate for the uh, court to uh, try to assess uh, that argument essentially for the first time. Uh, The argument about uh, whether the whole thing was premised on this false claim about not being able to work because he had been working as a taxi driver while receiving WCB payments. Yeah. Uh, And so on that basis, uh, the court said, well, whether that's true or not, uh, you didn't make that argument back at the stage of the Human Rights uh, Tribunal. That's where those things have to be made. You know, uh, don't make them for the first time in court on a judicial review. And so that's what that concept means, and that's why in this case uh, that uh, principle uh, wasn't assessed because the argument wasn't made at the first stage, and ultimately that's how you can wind up uh, with a uh, financial award uh, for damage to your dignity and feelings
0: uh, as a result of hurting your back moving a couch. Our next story is interesting because you and I often touch upon the importance of judicial independence because it is often the government itself that finds itself uh, a party in either litigation or similar proceedings that must be decided by a judge. And obviously, if the judge is employed by the government, can be hired and fired by the government, that judge is going to feel a significant amount of pressure. So we have this independence. I see another story involving the government in court, though, on our docket today. Exactly right, and you're exactly
1: correct in terms of why we're so lucky to live in a place where that is so, right? Where you can go to have an independent judge decide something and not be simply uh, at the whim of whatever the government or its employees might uh, think should happen. And this is a case also out of Victoria, uh, and it's a case involving uh, the uh, purchase of a home in Victoria uh, by somebody, uh, by a couple, right?, uh, one of whom was not at the time a permanent resident or a citizen. And the significance of that is that in British Columbia, they've decided to add this, what they refer to as a <laughs> ATT, a government talk, which would be an additional transfer tax. And, and so the way that works is that if somebody purchasing a uh, property uh, is uh, not uh, a Canadian permanent resident or citizen, Uh, they can fall into this category of a, quote, foreign entity. And if a foreign entity uh, purchases uh, property, they can be subject uh, to an additional 20% tax on the value of the property. That can be a lot of money. Uh, And in this case, given the price of homes in Victoria, the amount at issue was $331,980. It was a purchase of a home in 2019. And the factual background is that this couple, one of whom was not a Canadian uh, permanent resident or citizen at the time, one of whom was. Uh, And to purchase the home, probably being aware of this uh, potential large tax bill, um, what they did is they used a company uh, to purchase the home. uh, And before purchasing the home, having the company purchase the home, Uh, they made a declaration that the company uh, was purchasing the home uh, as the agent or trustee for the uh, spouse who was uh, a um, permanent resident of Canada. The other person became one later, but wasn't at the time. The government's position was too bad. That doesn't count uh, because the spouse who created that company several years earlier was the one who had not yet become a permanent resident. Uh, and so the government took the position that uh, they owe this $331,000. Uh, the couple appealed that, uh, and the uh, deputy minister of uh, uh, who had the authority to review it uh, upheld the large tax bill. And that's what led to the company owned by this couple uh, going to court to challenge it. Uh, and so that's where the independent judge comes in. Uh, and so the the judge hearing this appeal from whether the company owed all of this money for the tax uh, applied a, a principle that uh, deals with how taxes are to be assessed uh, when you have uh, a company uh, that is doing something uh, as a uh, either an agent for somebody uh, or where there's this concept of a bare trust, and that takes just a moment to explain. And the concept there is that if you have um, a company like this who's doing something for you, like buying a home uh, or a piece of property, but you also control the company, you can control what it's doing, from a tax perspective, it should be analyzed from the perspective that the company doesn't exist at all, right? Because if you're the beneficial owner, the spouse who... Uh, is a Canadian permanent resident, uh, and that person has control over it by being able to tell the company what to do, sell the property or transfer it or do whatever they want with it. The way it's supposed to be analyzed in British Columbia is it's as if that company or trustee doesn't, uh, doesn't exist uh, because you, you really just have direct control over it yourself. And so the reason that mattered here is the uh, spouse who had control over uh, the property really was the spouse who was a permanent resident. Uh, And so even though the company itself uh, would uh, have been subject to the tax because it would have met the definition of being a, quote, foreign entity, right, because it was set up by the person who originally was not a permanent resident, uh, because of that arrangement and the documents that they had prepared prior to buying the home, the the way the court found it should be analyzed is that it's as if this entity didn't exist uh, because the uh, company uh, only owned the thing uh, either as an agent for the uh, spouse who was a Canadian permanent resident uh, or, they were doing it owning, possessing it as a trustee in a way that the person could simply control it themselves it should be analyzed as if that entity didn't exist (laughs) so appreciate that's a big mouthful but the the uh, end result uh, is that the judge found that the government was not entitled to this additional transfer tax uh, because the uh, spouse who actually owned the property actually had control over it uh, was somebody who was a permanent resident Uh, And so no doubt not the uh, position that the government would have wanted and one that they uh, refuse to acknowledge through the appeal process. uh, But that's the uh, ultimate result. And the couple won't have to pay the extra $331,000 to the government, uh, thanks to the uh, independent assessment uh,
0: by the judge. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday, thanks for the time as always. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Take care.